Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and on this show, we try to understand the 30,000-piece puzzle that is healthcare and health IT, where each one of us holds a piece of expertise. So I am really excited to welcome our guest today. I would like to you for to take a moment, if you could please introduce yourself and talk about your piece of the health IT puzzle. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's pretty exciting to be here. I, I did listen to some of your other shows and you have some amazing people on your show. So my name is Shobha Pichardi. I'm the Chief Science, uh, Strategy and Product Officer at Informed DNA. And Informed DNA is a genomic solutions company and it's kind of a, a broad term, but in the context of the healthcare puzzle, I like to think of what we do is we are that last mile of great new technologies get developed, great new drugs get developed, and the insurance companies don't know who should get what, providers don't know who should be getting what. And so what we've built our expertise around is understanding that complex genomics, understanding the clinical outcomes, and kind of matching up which patient should get which drug or which test and helping both patients and payers through that journey of getting to the right drug or the right treatment for the right patient. So can you share with me what type of patients, like at what part of their journey are they getting genomics testing? That is a really good question. And it's something that's changing quite dramatically, even as we speak. So traditionally, genomic testing was part of maternity, was part of cancer. Um, Those are kind of the areas where it's been very early in the patient journey. But as we see more and more understanding of the genomic profile associated with different diseases, both hereditary and non-hereditary, what we're seeing is that it becomes an important underlying component of almost every care journey for almost every kind of patient. So you're going to have genomic implications in cardiovascular disease, in autoimmune disease, in diabetes, in it goes on and on. I think the you know underlying the biology of disease is the molecular biology of disease. And the more we understand about the molecular biology, the more precise we can be in our treatments 
with fewer side effects. So can you walk me through what a genomics test is like? We're not talking like 23andMe where I'm spitting into something and mailing it back. What is involved? What would I experience if I was getting a genomics test? The logistics of it may not be that different in that you would be getting something typically mailed to you for a collection at home that gets sent off. Typically, genomic tests are not like infectious disease tests where the doctor is trying to say, okay, what infections do you have? so I can prescribe the right antibiotic or the right antiviral. It's more of a longer-term kind of a question. So it gets sent to you. You take a cheek swab or sometimes it's a blood spot and you send it back. And then the lab typically takes, you know, some couple of weeks, depending on the complexity of the test that's being done, up to a few weeks if they're doing some sort of whole genome sequencing or something like that. So the process is not that different from a 23andMe versus a what we would call more of a clinical genomic test, but how you get to that test is different. So for 23andMe, you as a consumer can say, Hi, I'm curious about my you know, ancestry. I'm going to go and, and check this out. I'm curious about any lifestyle recommendations. I'm going to go check this out. But for most clinical diagnostics, and this is you know in the healthcare system where there is insurance payers involved in the decision of who gets what, and typically there's genetic counseling involved where the outcomes are explained to the patient, the treatment options are explained to the patient, and sometimes there are hereditary components that have to be discussed. You know, is this something that would affect family members, and should they be brought into some sort of a care pathway because of, of this genetic background? So the starting point is it could be, uh, or sorry, the end point in some ways could be similar in that you're taking a swab and sending it off. But before that, there's been a lot of clinical decision-making that's happened to determine which test is right for you. And then after that, there's a lot of clinical support to help you understand what to do with that information. Well, so you brought up something a moment ago about maternal health, right? And that is one area that people would want to know. And I would like to know, Especially after Roe v. Wade and like the new world we're in, you know, does that change when somebody would want to get a genomics test? Or can you share with me like how it's shifting in general? It is definitely a a seismic uh, event that happened. And I think, you know, people are people and by people, I mean, in the healthcare system are still processing it. The right to reproductive care is part of overall healthcare. And what we're starting to see is that insurance companies are starting to think about moving some of that genetic testing further upstream. So rather than having it, you know, more commonly focused on once a, uh, a woman knows she's pregnant, moving it upstream to carrier testing so that you can know beforehand what your genetic background is and what, you know, some potential risks might be associated with pregnancy. And um, so I think we're starting to see some of that as a consequence. Okay. So that brings up a couple questions for me. Would it have to be clinically like approved? Like when you're talking about the entry level, at what point would somebody need to have to get, you know, either a referral from their doctor or somehow like connect with them in order to get that, which means they need to be aware of that that's their intention, I would, I think ahead of time. And then secondly, are payers lined up to pay for it? Like, does, is there an approval process of whether it's actually needed or not? I know that that can be contentious at times. It can be. And I, you bring up uh, another excellent point, which is awareness is key. So if you don't know that 
A, this is something that can and should be done. You don't know that, you know, if you're this, this lack of education and access is something that is a very large problem in this space. It's one of the things that we're trying to address with this. As genomic technologies come out, they're opening up whole new worlds of understanding about the whole health and disease process and condition management. But what happens is that oftentimes the people who need it most don't have access to it because it's just not part of, you know, their world. It doesn't come in through, you know, whatever mechanisms of information that they have. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is by making sure that the right tests are getting to the right people, the right interventions are getting to the right people, we're expanding the access because there is only a certain capacity in the healthcare system to pay for these things. As more and more of these million-dollar drugs come out, as more and more of these, and they are coming out at that level, you know, these targeted therapeutics, and they've been shown to be spectacularly successful when they're exactly targeted to the right patient population. But the healthcare system can't afford to pay for that for everyone. And so the balance, striking that right balance is if we get it to the right people, then there's more capacity in the healthcare system to pay for different things that are targeted or beneficial to, for other people. So one of the things that we're trying to do is by helping kind of build that last mile and kind of being a, a little bit of a, a guide to the payers, guide to the patients and the providers, that we can create more capacity in the healthcare system overall to get these, you know, these fantastic test therapeutics out to more people who currently don't have access. We're also very focused on education and outreach to populations that might not normally be aware of these kinds of opportunities. I love hearing about this and knowing what you all are doing. And I, it does bring up a lot of questions for me. So another one I have is, what happens when somebody gets their results and say they are in a position that it might, you know, they might not be able to bear a pregnancy or bring it all the way to full term, and yet they still can get pregnant. Like, what would be somebody's opportunity to address that in advance of finding themselves in a, a situation where perhaps they live in a state where they, their reproductive choices are limited? This is a more, I would say, a, a societal issue that we have to address, given that what we try to do is try to create awareness and education ahead of even the, the pregnancy occurring. In instances where that pregnancy has already occurred, it has less to do with the genetic aspects of it and more to do with kind of the societal aspects of it. And I think the entire healthcare system, employers, I mean, we as a society are trying to figure out how we uh, navigate through this, this new reality. I'm not sure that we have a great answer for that yet. To be honest, it's going to take some time. Yeah, I wouldn't expect you. I mean, this whole thing is super complicated and you're right. It's a seismic shift. And one of the things I'm thinking like, okay, before somebody actually gets pregnant, if they now are more educated and have more detailed information about their genetic makeup, could they perhaps... The other aspect or angle that I'm coming from is for women who've decided that motherhood isn't for them. So if they want to not become a mother, oftentimes they have to convince their doctor that it, you know, of, of particular, like if they want to get, you know, sterilized or whatever, like whatever it is you, that you could do an IUD or whatever. But I'm just curious if it would be providing the 
the information that a doctor might need to make that decision. That decision meaning what what the options might be for a patient. Education across the board is hugely important. There's an education packaged in such a way that the doctor is more easily able to convey the options to the patient is another area where we're trying to bring some light as we bring more of these genomic technologies forward and that we're considering who all the audiences are. The patient is the primary recipient of the care and they have to be able to understand what's happening to them. And so when we think about bringing these technologies out, we are, are very conscious of how we explain the benefits, the risks to the patient as, as well as the provider. So we're trying to target both audiences in that education but it definitely helps the provider to have it in patient-facing language. Absolutely. So do you ha- can you share with me the type of education that you all provide? This is actually an area that's shifting as well, because what we have traditionally done is quite a lot of genetic counseling. And so we are very thorough in helping the patient understand what does this mean? What does it mean now? What does it mean for the future? What does it mean for my children? And um, helping them kind of understand the implications of genetic testing. But going forward, the, the other aspect that we see is incorporating some of the technology changes that are happening and how people like to consume information. And so there's a, a shift in, you know, sometimes people like to just read things. Sometimes people like to watch videos to understand things. Sometimes they want to text the counselor. Sometimes they want to do a video chat. So we've been technology forward in in the sense that we were the first telehealth genetic counseling company. And we look to broaden our kind of scope of education beyond just the referred patient genetic counseling experience. We're really bringing in a lot more technology capabilities. Thank you for that. So Dr. Pichotti, could you please tell me if we can shift gears for a moment and talk about you? I would love to learn a little bit more about you and your professional journey. What did you study? How did you become the chief strategy officer? Like, what is that path for somebody who is just starting off their career? My undergraduate degree was in genetics, and I probably at that time thought I was going to go to medical school. That was kind of the path I started on in high school. I did an internship with a uh, nurse midwife, actually, who worked in probably one of the most challenging hospitals in San Francisco. And as part of my internship, she assigned me as a birth coach to a teenage woman who was in her practice under her care. And so I, you know, here I was this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed high school student, you know, heading off to college and aspirations in medical school. And I got to see this whole other side teenage life that, you know, I had never experienced before. And the lack of education around healthcare choices, the lack of access to healthcare was it was it was just striking and eye opening. So I went into college thinking, okay, I'm gonna go to medical school. I really want to have a huge impact in this area. And somewhere in college I decided no medical school was not for me and I wound up pursuing an academic PhD. So I went into a program at NYU in molecular oncology and immunology just studying deep biochemical mechanisms of how cells turn things on and off, basically. And after that, I decided, well, okay, bench science is not for me because when I started to talk about what I did at, say, cocktail parties 
you know, I barely care because when you get into deep academic research, it gets so narrowly focused that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to have to feel like you're having a large impact. And so when I left, this was back in the 2000s timeframe, and it was just post the dot-com boom. And it was a, an environment in the Bay Area in, in California where VCs had a ton of money, but they, were, they had just gotten burned by all these advertising-based dot-com models, and they were looking for companies that were building things. And so I wound up founding a startup right out of grad school, with, and it was based on this the principle that uh, double-stranded DNA can conduct electricity. So it was kind of closing a, a circuit using double-stranded DNA as a biosensor. So, I mean, tremendous learning opportunity. I grew so much and the startup failed. <laughs> but I, I got to live that whole, whole cycle of raising, you know, Sand Hill Road venture capital and lived the, the startup dream for a few years. And then, it, you know, it became reality that we were actually really far away from product. And so I went into a company called Applied Biosystems which then got acquired by Life Technologies and it is now Thermo Fisher, where it was just a, an absolutely fantastic training ground for what I came to understand was product management. I didn't even know that that term existed because uh, when you're back in those days, at least in graduate school, people don't talk about things that are not, you know, academic bench research. That's just an unknown dark side. I would say one piece of advice that I would give, especially for people earlier on in their career is don't be so focused on your resume, as in I started out at this role and then I went to this role and then I went to this role, but be focused more on what is the story that you're building and where are you aiming? So, you know, people, when I joined Applied Biosystem, I joined as a senior product manager and people, when they learned that I had previously been a CEO of my own startup, they were like, oh my God, how could you possibly do that? You know, leave it, you could be a senior product manager after that. But what I found was that the area that I really needed to learn was product management. And I was certainly not qualified to be anything more than a senior product manager. And so I think being willing to kind of put my ego aside and pursue what I felt like I really wanted to and needed to learn enabled me to kind of make that, that shift over into a career that was more on the business side of science. So I would say that would be one. one. I love that. I'm so impressed. First of all, I like, I love the idea of being courageous. Like that's definitely a brave move to take right after grad school. And I think that you're absolutely right about like reframing, you know, what you might look at as a quote unquote failure as a, an amazing learning opportunity. Like without that, you know, situation, I'm sure that it laid the groundwork for so much more that came. Absolutely. Having struggled with being a CEO and trying to do all of the jobs myself, when I landed in a, you know, highly matrix organization where each function knew what they were doing, I was just like a sponge. I could learn marketing from great marketers. I could learn about contracts from great lawyers and you know, all of this, I was, I was just, it was just an absolutely fabulous learning environment. I guess also kind of wrapping up from the beginning part of our conversation, what do you think that people should be aware of? Like if they're going into a doc, like what questions could they ask or what should they be aware of in order to be in support of their long-term patient journey? That is actually a great question. There are so many aspects of healthcare that we've been treating as a, a, 
trial and error process with medications in so many fields such as mental health, pain management, and a lot of these have to do with your underlying genomic profile. So, you know, asking, could I speak to a genetic counselor? Is there a genetic component to my condition? Are there any tests that can be run to know which drug I should be taking? These are all questions that someone could ask. And I would say looking towards the future, we're starting to see costs for whole genome sequencing approach something that is palatable. And you're starting to see some states where they're experimenting with even using whole genome sequencing for newborn screening, where, you know, typically most states have a set of genes that they look at for inherited diseases that the um, inherited conditions that the, the baby might be born with, they're starting to look at whole genome sequencing. And so you're starting to go into a world where, you know, maybe it's five years, 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, but the cost of whole genome sequencing is not going to be the bottleneck. It's going to be more how do we as a society deal with this level of information about ourselves and each other, right? Um, how do we keep that private? How do I maintain control? And how do I look at that as a part of my changing healthcare needs? So even if I have my whole genome sequence, my needs of that genome sequence are not the same when I'm a child, you know, when I'm 50 years old and maybe I'm starting to look at, did I have any hereditary cancer or precursor genes that I need to be aware of? So I think being more of an advocate for yourself and understanding that a lot of these things have genomic underpinnings and it is good to know about them, but it's also your right to ask about them. It's not going to be necessarily offered to you at this point. It will get there, but it's not offered uh, in advance usually at this point. Okay. So if somebody's, this is maybe a layman question, just dumb it down for me, but if I get my gene, if I get my genome sequenced at birth, is it going to be the same? When I'm, I mean, it's the same throughout my life, right? It doesn't change. It doesn't change. And that's, that's why it, we're really at this exciting inflection point in healthcare where the, you know, it went the first human genome cost something like, I don't know, a billion dollars or something to sequence. And now we're heading into a space where it's hundreds of dollars. Wow. Um, and so, yes. And so being able to, being able to have that sequence and then being able to, we, we call, there's a concept of test once query often, where as new biological understanding is achieved about a condition, you can requery your sequence. You know, you may have diabetes, right? But there's a hundred different ways that you can get to have diabetes at the molecular level. And as more is understood about it, you can requery your, your genome and say, oh, I have this kind of diabetes. This is the drug for me. And, you know, get to much more precise management of conditions. So it's a really exciting time to be in healthcare. That's like incredible. I can imagine querying it like every five years of some, you know, in the future of somebody's life of just being like, okay, what is pertinent to me now? My dream is everyone gets sequenced, you know, kind of as they want. Ideally, the health plans cover it because they run tests on us for various things, you know, as needed over a period of time. If you did it once and you had it for your entire life journey, that would be, at some point, it becomes the economically right thing to do, right? But to be able to, you know, look again at various points in time and say, let's, Joy, you're here for your, your annual physical, great. Okay, why don't you go get your annual genomic, you know, profile too? And you can have a reinterpretation. Hey, this is all the stuff that came out this year. And we looked at your genome profile, and here's a couple things that, that we learned 
this last year that applies to you. Yeah. And then and, and that's kind of the pace at which the knowledge is moving. So yeah. That's really exciting. And it's also interesting to think about being overwhelmed with amount of information, like you had mentioned, what do you do with it? And also, what do other people do with it? Like what, like, how do you keep it safe and secure? So before we go, can can we just talk about that for a minute while I have you here? Like, okay, that's a ton of information. How could it be used against me? I get all these ways it can be used for me, but how could it be used against me? And this is, again, at the societal level, something that we have to decide how we handle. Um, from a technical perspective, there are things that are, are in the works and available. So uh, you've heard of blockchain in other contexts. Mm-hmm. Blockchain is also being used to secure genomic information. So you as an individual through blockchain can control access to your own genomic profile. Now that's technical, but then what happens with situations where your employer may ask for it? I don't know. I mean, you know, these are all things that that, um, there are rules that have existed with our previous technologies that probably need to be revisited given this level of understanding. You know, when you get life insurance, for example, they give you a physical today. Could they ask for your genome profile? And, you know, what would that imply? What would that mean wow. in terms of, you know, uh, I think these are these are all questions that, that we're going to have to address as a society. But the balance of benefit, healthcare benefit to the individual versus some of these kind of more privacy, society, and ethical, ethically related questions, I think we just have to make sure that we address those properly. The technology exists to do it. We just have to have the kind of infrastructure, legal infrastructure, business infrastructure to support that. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. If people want to follow you or connect with you online, what would be the best place for them to do so? Our website is www.informdna.com. And we do have a LinkedIn page if people would like to reach out there. Okay. All of this is fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed and learned a lot from this conversation. So I think our listeners will too. So I appreciate you and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.